And I sat on the floor of my office and had it all spread out around me and I'm trying to work out the order of things um, because all of the investigations in Dice folder wasn't necessarily in time, date, order. Um, and once I had that in a bit of a what made sense to me, I needed to get Dye back in and take another Welcome back to Code, uh, to Code Red, everybody. Uh, we're part two of our stalker case uh, from Australia, the land down under. And with us, we have Dee McDonald, who was the survivor of the stalking case. And we have the investigator, Beck, who uh, actually brought this thing to closure and is going to kind of take us home here in episode two. Beck, I have to ask you. Fitz is here too, by the way. Oh, yeah. Fitz, did I forget about you? You know what? I Not do the that first time, the time, Ray. I'm so sorry. Right? Sorry about that, Fitz. But anyways, Beck, before you were assigned this case, with D. Did you know anything about it? Had you heard about it? No. So it was just, you just got it cold and you walked in and did anybody share information? Did they have a file on this or did you just start from ground zero? All of that. All of it. All of that and more, right? (laughs) I remember vividly, actually, the day I met Di um, and from my memory, the way it came about was that, as um, Di mentioned in the last part, the complaint made to um, Parliament. So that had gone across to the Victoria Police Commissioner and then filtered its way down to our office. Um, and as I was the only detective in the team, I was assigned the case. And it was, we've got this complaint. Di McDonald's coming in. We've got a meeting with her. Um, there's been multiple reports over a period of time. And I knew that Di wasn't happy with police. Um, so, I, yeah, I vividly remember meeting her. And I remember that the day Di was actually, I was sick. <laughs> My head was was foggy. And I remember sitting across a very large table from Di with, who had a folder like that, full of paperwork. And looking at Di, and I could tell, and Di, correct me if I'm wrong here, but she was not happy. <laughs> at all and I'm thinking, yeah how am I going to build rapport here because this this case is going to go on for a while you know stalking's not normally something that's quick I need to build a relationship with her but she's furious with police so I was um, up against it from the get-go and I'm not actually sure I can't remember how the rapport actually started or when when that changed between you and I but I recall saying to Di what's in that folder and she's like evidence I've been collecting things for years and my head you know is exploding because it was so so much evidence and when Di reluctantly handed it over to me because I think she thought I was going to lose it and I'm flicking through it there was actual exhibits hard copy exhibits um, the posters that should have been collected by police that weren't collected by police that had forensic evidence on them sitting in this folder that Di had so so would it be would it be fair to say that until your involvement, the police really had no active role in Di's case? Very little. Very, yeah. very little. I think Beck, as well. You, you can be diplomatic here, Beck. I know it's your former agency, but go ahead. Um, yes and yes and no. I, I think I had the benefit of being able to pull it all together and look at every case. Prior to family violence, Family Violence Investigation Units being created, and that was on the back of a Royal Commission. So prior to 
um, I'm not even sure the year might have been 2018, but those specific units created with detectives to investigate family violence. It it wasn't. It was done by uniform members on the divisional van that are going to multiple jobs and things. So they weren't able to spend the time on these cases. So when I was assigned to Di's case and I was able to go back and look at our system and see every report she'd ever made and see that they weren't all to the one police station, and that's not any fault of Di's, you go to the closest police station. But I think the police weren't able to look at it holistically because, for example, you've got St Kilda Police looking at something and then Craigieburn and Broadmeadows and it was just very disjointed, whereas I had the benefit of being able to look at everything overall. Um, and sure, there were some problems that, and things that could have been done better, definitely, um, but I was able to pull some of those cases that had been unsolved and add them to my investigation when I started that with that. So October 2014. Die first meets this gentleman, and the issues begin probably around May, where they become kind of a problem. So May of 2015, when do you get involved? Three years later. <laughs> You're getting involved in 2018? Yeah. So this is now going on for f almost four years. Is that fair? Nearly, yeah, nearly five, Doc. Uh, four, yeah, right, yeah probably point. three and a half years, yeah. Yeah, three and a half, almost four years. So your first steps in the investigation is to look at all this evidence. And after you look at all this and you go, oh, my God, there's so much forensic evidence here, so many other things here. Why don't you just go out and make an arrest? <clears throat> not that simple. Um, Good. Uh, Tell me now. Tell me why not. Right. Ray knew that, but he wants to hear I knew that, but I'm just setting you up here. Tell me why not. I think from a for a visual representation as well as to what I was doing. So, again, imagine Dyer's folder. It's huge. And all of the police um, investigations that I had to get, some of them had been filed because that was so old, so I had to get them sent to me. And I sat on the floor of my office and had it all spread out around me, and I'm trying to work out the order of things um, because all of the investigations in Dyer's folder wasn't necessarily in time, date, order. Um, and once I had that in a bit of a what made sense to me, I needed to get Di back in and take another statement from her and go through, so when did this letter get received and when did that letter get received and make sure that they hadn't already been reported, which ones hadn't hadn't been reported. So it was all very um, messy to begin with. Um, and I remember my colleagues walking in. It was a very small team and it was just paperwork everywhere. It made sense to me, but it didn't make sense to anyone else. And I was like, do not touch it. Don't even look at it. I've got it in order. That makes sense. Um, but, yes, so I was able to see that some of the, the letters had never been forensically examined. And obviously there's issues with the ones that Di had because um, they'd been contaminated by sitting, you know, in folders and being touched by multiple people. But there were still things that were able to be done with that. Jim, you held up a letter before where I think from memory you can see at the top of it there's um, the tape when it was photocopied probably. You can see that there was tape and fibres stuck in that tape from when they were stuck on the business windows. So I was able to send them all off to our forensic um, lab, or Victoria Police's forensic lab, and get it examined for fingerprints and DNA and also to look at the fibres in that were stuck in the tape. Um, and to answer your question, Ray, why didn't I go and arrest him? Well, let me ask you this, Beck. Mm -hmm. um, Di knows that the stalker, she knows who he is, 
She knows his identity. How long does it take you to determine that who Di says a stalker is, that's the guy? Very quickly. Same as Di. Obviously not an expert in linguistic analysis, but you look at the way the letters are written, the tabbing, as Di said, but also there was some that had used the same terminology. I think there's reference to a dartboard used in at least two letters over maybe 12 months. There was a big gap in between those. Um, I knew it was him. But as you know, in law enforcement, assume nothing. You've got to prove it first. Everyone's, well, here, innocent until proven guilty. So I needed to get all my my ducks in a row. Um, Unfortunately, our forensic analysis can sometimes take a long time in Australia, especially they categorise, you know, a murder is going to take priority. So things were going to take a long time, unfortunately. You're developing along the way here, so our audience knows. You, you want to arrest this individual, but you need to develop probable cause. Yes. And you're putting this together. You're doing some forensic testing. You're doing some interviews. You're doing a lot of different things to develop this probable cause. What does it take for you to get to the point where you develop enough probable cause that you can at least, maybe not arrest the person at this point, but at least take a look behind the scenes of this individual, like in his vehicle or in his house. How long does it take? And what's the defining moment with that that gets you over the hump? From my memory, I think it was around this Christmas time, 2018, was when Jim got involved, I think. But prior to that, um, as I said, we we knew it was him and I was really worried that the forensic analysis wasn't going to help me because, as I mentioned, there was fibres in the sticky tape which led me to believe the person was wearing gloves. So if there's no fingerprints and there's no DNA, how how am I going to prove this? And so the way um, I got Jim involved, and I'm not sure if the detective wants me to mention her name, but... I reached out to our Victoria Police's criminal profiler who knows Jim personally. And the purpose of that conversation was I need help with an interview plan. How am I going to interview him? This is what I know about his personality and what he's been doing. And I, in my mind, I needed him to make admissions because otherwise I wasn't going to be able to charge him. Um, I wasn't confident at all that we would be able to charge him. And she came out, she looked at everything that I had and she said, have you thought about linguistic analysis, which I didn't know about because it's not something that's done here that, or that I know of. And she mentioned the Unibom case and Netflix and, sorry, Jim, I hadn't heard of it. <laughs> well, let, let that's all right. Know. That's all right. We, we need to be able to get his head through the door and the way out of here, you know what I mean? But, but what, what I want to say to you is this, is that these conversations about forensic linguistics and talking to Jim and, and getting his assistance in this, which, by the way, was instrumental in bringing closure to this. But did you do that prior to going into his home? Or was it after you went into his home when you had these discussions? Because you did get a search warrant for his home, correct? Yeah, we did. And I apologize. I can't remember which order it was. I think it took me a long time to get approval for Jim to be involved. Um, There's a lot of red tape around that 
Um, but I definitely did a search warrant on the house. The stalker wasn't home at the time. He, um, from memory, he saw us coming and left in, and received a phone call um, but didn't want to come home while we were searching the house. But that was another big moment as well. But circumstantial evidence was found. For example, searching the kitchen and the dining table, there was, you know, other members going through everything. And there was a plastic shopping bag, like a grocery bag, that I looked at, and in that was a black balaclava and black gloves, which is mind-blowing to me that they would just be sitting there ready to go in the house. Why Why is that mind-blowing to you? <clears throat> it's like a little go bag. Yeah, absolutely. And if I could yeah. add, there was surveillance film or surveillance re- recordings from one of these storefronts or telephone pole, wherever these posters were being put up, and there's a guy in the description of the clothing you also yeah. found in the stalker's house. Correct. Yeah. So, so again, I, maybe not direct evidence, but circumstantial, as you said. Circumstantial, for sure. There was also other things located in the house, um, such as one of one of the photos that's used in one of the flyers. I think it was Di and Kathy. Can you hear the drilling? Um. I heard a little bit of it, but don't worry about it. Sorry. So one of the photos of Di and Kathy that was used um, in a flyer, there was a, a cutout, a piece of paper where you could see it was a Facebook photo. So the, the comment and stuff was still there, but the photo was gone. And that's just randomly in a kitchen cupboard, sticky tape, things like that. So we were able to seize all of those things and send them off for testing. Um, the glove fibres in the tape was compared to the gloves that I seized. And obviously it's difficult for the experts to say that the fibres are from those gloves. They can't say that. But what they did say was that the fibre type was so unique that it would be unlikely that they weren't from that type of glove, which also added to my case. Um, But, again, it's not illegal to have a balaclava on gloves in your house. It's just circumstantial. But it was another, it was a really big win for me and the case just to have that. Um, And also to find some, from memory, we found some other writing styles, cards and things that I think we might have used as well later with Jim. Back investigatively, did you feel comfortable telling Di about the results of the search or is that something you wanted to keep close to the vest for the investigation. How did you handle that part, knowing you have Di as, she's not a survivor yet at that point, she's still going through this, but basically she is the target of this stalker. So were you relating some of this information to her at this point? I tried to keep Di as updated as possible. Um, I think that added to the rapport building, because I always said to Di, "I'll, I'll tell you if I've got something to tell you, ring me if you want to know anything and I'll tell you what I can. I don't know, Di, that I told you that we found the balaclava. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you you did call me about issuing the search warrant and what happened when you first went into his home. You you did tell me all of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for me it it really depends on who your victim is as to how much you tell them. But as I said at the very start, building a relationship with, with Di was also paramount because it was a, going to be a tough investigation to begin with, so I needed to have a good relationship with her um, as much as I could. 
So, and then I think it was April 2019, roughly, that he was arrested. And that was after we, we definitely had Jim's report then. Well, let me ask you, did, when I know you're going to there's show my, There's the front page of the report. I yellowed some things here, but it's dated February 7th. And I think it was right around the Christmas holidays of, uh, of 18 back that you first reached out for me. It was a cold email. I'd done some work with Victoria PD before, about a year before, in another case involving threatening or harassing letters. And just coincidentally, here is another detective from the same PD in Australia contacting me. And uh, I had a good working relationship in the past. And uh, and we worked out the details and uh, and I got to work. And, uh, and luckily, this stalker had sent D, and she described some of them, some letters he wrote. We actually come in your store and hand them to you or hand them to other people, D. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, and that, that they became the known writings of our suspect. Because you always, if you're going to do authorial attribution analysis, fancy word for comparing documents for content, et cetera, you need question communications. And what do we have? 24 of them or so uh, uh, of the different flyers around um, Victoria. And then we had another uh, uh, handful of known writings of the stalkers, which contain a lot of good information linguistically. And that's how, uh, and that's how that part came together. And I know, Beck, you've I've heard you say in the past that I emailed you that report, and you went right to the conclusion at the end, and you were kind of glad in uh, in how I sort of summarized that for you. But I think you told D not too long after that. There's a lot of pressure from my end, as I sort of alluded to before. It took me a long time to get approval to get Jim involved. Um, if you can imagine trying to create a report for something that isn't done, there's no case law in Victoria. Um, so I'm asking for something that we don't even know if it's going to work, whether the court will accept it. Um, obviously, I knew about the other detective that Jim's referring to, but that wasn't resolved either at court. So there was a lot of pressure on me, not just from the investigative point of view and, and trying to get an outcome for die, but to make sure that it was actually going to work. Um, so I did, I did, Jim, it's not... An exaggeration, I, I didn't read your report straight away. I just went to the end and I remember my reaction and my colleagues talk about my reaction to it because it was such a relief. Like I knew it was him, I knew it was him, everyone knew, but to have an expert confirm that was huge. And there are many cases I'm asked to look at, you know, in the US and other countries even, and the conclusion doesn't come to that. And I say, look, or I mean, just tell them verbally, there's not even a need for a report. Sorry, you either have the wrong person's writings or this person is really, really clever in how they disguise things. That's pretty rare that that would happen. But in your case, of course, I go into every case objectively. And um, and I just looked at the, the Q docs, the question docs, and the K docs, the no, ones known to be written by the stalker. And I got my magic pens out. And before long, I said, uh, yeah, and what we say, just like you said with the laboratory, with fibers on gloves, they can't say it's an exact match. And in linguistics, we don't say that either. But my ultimate opinion was that the cues, when compared to the writing style of the stalker, used his actual name in the report, in his 7K documents, the seven known writings of his, is consistent to the degree of exceptionally distinctive. And that's the highest on the scale of linguistic comparison. So there's really, we don't really say that guy wrote them while we're testifying in court or whatever, but we would say they are consistent. And and really that's in the, in the 90 percentile. We don't use those numbers when testifying, but for the layman purposes, just to describe that, if you're looking at language and they 
it compares that readily with all the different features we had there. You mentioned indenting. There are some other factors this guy used that were really giveaways uh, in terms of uh, of how this all came together. So, uh, so I was glad again. A lot of work done in Victoria on this case. I had one little slice of it, and I was glad to help out the best I could. And then you had my report back. I assume you turned that over to prosecutors. And what happened from that point, Jim? Before you before you go back, I I just like to to tap into Jim a little bit here. Jim, I'd like to know if you could give an example or two sure. of what led you to come to that decision that this was at the highest point of the scale that you use or that people in your field use to uh, give uh, authorship to a document. Sure. And the first thing I did was compare the um, 20, uh, there were some duplicates in there, but 20 question communications. So the first thing I do in every case is compare them for common authorship. Was it conceivable two or three people could have been stalking D? It wasn't the case. It was one. And that was my first opinion in my report. And then after that, it was um, uh, it came to some very specific factors in that. Um, and, and I think Beck mentioned this earlier about the indenting. And um, in, there were 71 separate paragraphs in the QDOCs. 53 of those paragraphs were indented, making it 74.6%. Gets a little wonky here, but these numbers are actually actually valuable when it comes to comparing these. Now looking at the KDOCs, the ones the stalker wrote for D, there are 102 paragraphs I counted. 86 of them are indented, which came down to 84.3%. So we have within about uh, uh, nine percentage points there of the number of uh, paragraphs indented from a linguistic, you know, stylistic perspective, that's important. Another factor, many of these sentences of both the QDOCs and the KDOCs, many of the paragraphs were just one sentence. So again, some quick numbers here, 71 paragraphs in the QDOCs, um, uh, 70 of them contain only one sentence. So that's a 98.5%. And with the KDOCs, 102 paragraphs, 88 of them are one sentence, 86.2%. So both kind of, they're not consistent 100% one way or the other, but it actually strengthens the case just as much when you have an inconsistency, yet the percentage of those two things are very much, um, uh, are, are very much fall in line percentage-wise. There were some spelling issues. This guy liked using uh, uppercase lettering for just common nouns. And there's a few cases of those in the QDOCs. And then we have that a lot in the KDOCs. Now in German language, they use uppercase for common nouns, for certain common nouns, but that's not in English or Australian English. This guy had a uh, individual habit of just uppercase lettering on certain words like hospital, police, birthday, charges, and um, not the same words in the QDOCs, but just unusual common nouns or occasionally verbs in which they were in fact at the same time, used the same way. This guy liked using all uppercase lettering for the word no for emphasis person purposes. So capital N, capital O, a number of times in the Q docs, capital N, capital O, a number of times in the Q docs, uh, in the K docs, sorry. Um, um, yeah, so mi mix up on apostrophes and pluralization and possessives and, um, um, entirely in bold sentences. So all of these added together 
Uh, one or two of those features may not have meant as much, meant as much but since you know, this is the only person that inside information on Diane McDonald, and we have those in some of these flyers, uh, lo and behold, we're finding these Q docs and the K docs line up so well from a stylistic and orthographical spelling perspective that this just built this case for me. And, and the way I phrased it consistent to the degree of exceptionally distinctive, there was really virtually no other way that it was a, a different author than our stalker. You know, I have to say, uh, and I throw this out to you, Beck, um, a lot of initiative, innovation on your part. You're doing something that nobody else has ever done. There's no case law. There's no precedent. And yet you go and you do something, and that's what brings your case home. I mean, I think that that is amazing. And I wish there were more law enforcement officers like yourself that had that mindset. That's what it takes to be able to get things done. But here, you eventually arrest this guy in April, which is fantastic. What a, what a, and it must have been a great feeling, not only for you, but for Di as well. Did you get a chance to interview him or did he clam up right away? He clammed up. Oh, that's, legal term. that's a legal term, by the way, clammed up. Yeah, thank you. I get that. It's clammed. not something from down under with the clams. I get it. I get it. We're not talking lobster, right? It'll be, but it'll be shrimp. Sometimes Jim has a tendency to put these things in the telephone book interview. We'll talk about that offline, that you can usually do those things. It's a Philly thing. It's a Philly thing where Jim and I are from over in the States. But he clams up on you. But what's, you know what? Even though he clams up, you still get a chance to read his body language. What's his body language telling you? I think he knew that we had him. And and from my perspective, I'd obviously gone through every other interview ever relating to Di. So I knew how he was, well, I thought I knew how he was going to behave with me and victimise himself. And I, I actually thought that that's, he would try and talk his way out of it, but he didn't. I, my feeling is that once we'd done that search warrant and there was things missing, like the balaclava and the gloves, that had never been done before. And it probably changed his mindset of how he was going to behave. And so I was incredibly disappointed that I wasn't going to be able to get his version, even if it's all rubbish. I was hoping that it would be the opportunity to tell Di his reason for why he did what he did, no matter how fanciful that was. Um, I think the interview only went for a couple of minutes, which the longest part would have been me reading him his caution and rights. You know, there's times sometimes, Beck, that, and Jim and I have both been involved in this, that once a case is over, sometimes we'll go back to the offender and see if they have an interest in speaking to us, just to help us out when we look at other cases like this. Did you attempt to do something like that? No, we didn't. I know Di's not the only victim or survivor, unfortunately. Um, How do you know that? I spoke to them. You spoke to the victims, other 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 survivors, I should say. Yep. At least, well, at that point, it was three decades worth of survivors. Wow. And for, for your context here, we don't cold call victims. Do not do that. Because obviously it can be fraught with danger and re-traumatizing people and things like that. But 
I knew already knew of at least one through Di, as in I'd met her and I'd been given a couple of names as well. So I did cold call them and was very gentle around how I approached that. Unfortunately, none of them wanted to talk to me in terms of a formal statement. However, they did tell me behaviour and things that had happened but didn't want to sign up, which I understood. But also, I guess, fueled the fire for me that I needed to resolve this case because it had just been going on for so long. It's clear this guy, he's a serial stalker. But the one thing we didn't cover yet, we're we're going to wind up here, and I want to hear a little bit more about what what Di is doing now with the the Australian uh, legislature and other folks there. But Di, at some point, you got a phone call or a knock at the door from Beck on the day he was arrested. Do you remember how, did you have any idea that was coming? How did that all part play out for you from your perspective, Di? Yeah, Beck did call me. I, I did know that they were going to arrest him and charge him. It, it did take a bit of time and it, there were 28 charges laid against him, which was really, really good for me. Um, how it eventuated in court changed dramatically. The 28, he, at the last minute, as you know, Jim, entered a plea Rather than going to a two-day committal hearing and then a possible trial, he decided to plead guilty to one count of stalking. And then we had to counter plea, which we had the prosecutor we had at the time there, I wasn't too happy with, and Beck was there when I let my feelings known that I wasn't happy with the counter plea. I wanted to reject the original plea that the stalker had offered and I definitely didn't want to put through our counter plea because I wanted a standalone charge of recklessly causing serious injury which is to me and my mental health that wasn't recognized as far as I'm concerned as a as a standalone I wanted people to know the damage he's done to me you you can't see it but you know yes it's um mental damage but from that I also have a lot of physical damage being so stressed all the time and and I don't feel I got that across but the way I got around it was when we did eventually go to court and I submitted my victim impact statement I put everything in there I didn't follow the guidelines that they give us when you write a victim impact statement so I wrote pages and pages and I put in photos that my teeth were snapping, my hair had turned white, my I had got gotten shingles, and the worst part was my hip was the point where the stress would immediately go. It was incredibly painful, would stop me in my tracks, and last year I actually had hip replacement because of it. So I was 58 years old getting hip replacement due to stress. So that... That was my way of telling the magistrate this is the physical ramifications of the stress I've been under for the last five years. It's now 2020 that we're in court. And another thing that I didn't didn't realise with my victim impact statement, with full disclosure, the perpetrator and his legal team receive a copy of your victim impact statement. What I didn't know was they can actually censor it. 
So I had all these highlighted paragraphs of my statement that I was not allowed to read out in court. So people might be wondering what was actually redacted there. It was all to do with Kathy, Kathy Meany and her death. I put in absolutely everything and how that affected me personally. But I wasn't allowed to t uh, speak about that in court. But uh, I did speak for about 20 minutes. And when I had to skip over lines and paragraphs, I'd look up at the magistrate and he'd be looking at me and looking down. He had an original copy, so he was able to see the things that were redacted and he, he got lost because I had to keep skipping. That's unbelievable. That, yeah, I that know. is unbelievable <laughs> and unacceptable in my eyes. Well, same. Like, they, don't do that. they don't do that in America. I think that's wrong. I mean, it's a victim impact statement, not a, an offender impact statement. Well, exactly. I should be allowed to speak about how his offending has affected me and my family yeah. and my friends. Yeah. No, it was only about Kathy that was redacted. I'm sorry that happened to you, Di. I mm. really am. That's so wrong. I, I, I was angry, really, really angry. Um, Rightfully so. Rightfully yeah. so. Yeah. Rightfully so. So, Beck, how, how much time does this guy get? Not long. Not long. <laughs> Not long I, enough? I, not long enough? Not long enough, no. So the term of imprisonment for stalking maximum here is 10 years, and he got eight months. Eight months out of 10 years. And that was even cut short for COVID, right? Yep. Um, yes. He was on remand and dur during this time, and yeah, because <clears> of COVID, prisoners were given um, – was taken into account that they were locked down in their cells. So those, some of those days were removed. Yeah. Um, eight months is not long, obviously. I, I'm still glad that he got imprisonment because there was a chance he might not have. So, you know, um, and also going backwards a little bit, when he did plead guilty, that was disappointing for me because obviously you run the risk of you, you go to trial and you could lose. So you're going to take the wins where you can. But from an investigator point of view, I wanted Jim's evidence to be tested and potentially create case law here so other people could use that if they ever came across something similar. Mm. And also I think, I, speaking for you, Di, I think Di would have got a lot out, out of giving evidence and actually telling the court what had happened and telling a jury what had happened to her and that was taken away from her and the only chance she really got to do that was the victim impact statement, which, which was, was then redacted. Reda yes. yes. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. That would have yeah, had a lot I was, of I was on standby for uh, for the t to testify in the uh, trial, but uh, I think about a day and a half before, someone emailed me, uh, back it may have been you, maybe a prosecutor, and said, oh, he's pleading guilty. That's all I heard. Oh, okay, well, that's good news. But uh, I didn't find out until later, kind of reduced charges, some were thrown out, and uh, and, and the only the eight-month uh, uh, sentence on his part, which even that was uh, – even that was cut short, but uh, I would have gladly testified in that case, and perhaps yes, created helped to create some uh, some uh, case law in Australia for the other linguists who work there, who are trying to do some of some of the work like this in that regard. Um, let's wrap things up, but but D, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. I know I'm saying D and die. Yeah. I, I do the same thing. I answer to yeah. both because people call me both, so it's it's all good. <laughs> but I'm doing it at the, at, in, in the same interview and. And uh, whenever I have a niece with the exact same name as you, 
and um, mm. a little bit confusing there. But tell us now, you you could have easily, again, I don't want to use the word victim, but you could have just been a victim and 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 went away and forgot about this. You are a survivor, and mm-hmm. you took uh, you took the mantle on this, and you 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 said no, I'm going to do something for future stalking survivors. And you talk to people, you talk to politicians, you talk to other people with influence. Give us kind of a summary of where that went and perhaps where you are now. I know you're in a report, you mentioned what, 25 times or so in, in a, in a yeah. federal yeah. Australian report. And I want to hear a little bit about that. There, there was a, um, the Victorian Law Reform Commission looked into stalking laws and how inadequate they are and what they can do to improve things. So I submitted a nearly 9,000-word submission for that. And the final report, seven of my recommendations to help victims when they first go into a police station and all the way through have been, well, should be implemented. And, yeah, so with my story, it was mentioned yeah, 25 times in the final report, which I'm very proud of that they actually listened to me. From there, um, I've been appearing in Parliament, updating victims of crime compensation. I was not allowed any compensation. They said to me, come back when I had a case. So I was funding all of my security measures and that by myself. I'm extremely grateful to my bank allowing me to redraw equity out of my home to do this. So it's very expensive. Still your money, though. Yeah. I had to also purchase a new car because he had completely destroyed my uh, car. So so now the um, Compensation Act has stalking and threats to kill and threats to cause serious injury as something that a victim can claim or a survivor can claim. And another thing what I didn't know was with the Compensation Act, a perpetrator is actually advised when you go for compensation, when you apply. I didn't know that. So they have a say in whether or not you receive any compensation. That's now been taken away. Good. It, <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, that's good. It, it's just insane that the perpetrator has so many more rights than a victim survivor. So that was a big tick for future victims. And, yeah, so now what I'm trying to do is get a foundation happening, the Stalking Awareness Foundation for Empowerment, safe for short and also implement a stalking awareness day in the month of may because the month of may here in australia is domestic violence month so i I think it's fitting that we have a day in that month just solely for stalking and how people can recognize it what they can do to protect themselves where they can go for help and so on with that said di what should people do if they're being stalked, I mean, you wrote the book on it. I mean, I, I, Thank you. Back, I you, think you, so. And, and she didn't want to be the author either. And you didn't want to be no, the author. No, I that's correct. I get it. Yeah, that's true. But you, what you did, uh, is is amazing to me. I think you're well, amazing you. to what you did. And and Beck, you're you're even amazing in what you did and how you were able to bring this thing together with your innovation and getting things done. But with both of you guys, what should victims do if they're being stalked? Yeah, keep everything. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I kept the original rose he gave me. I, th- I think I had it in a book, um, 
pressing it, you know, how it dries out and you press it, mm -hmm. whatever reason, I, I did that. And just started keeping everything else from the used condoms he left on my doorstep and in my mailbox. I kept those. I have no idea why I did this, but I did. And I also wrote journals every time something happened. So each year I would buy a new journal and just write, write, write everything that was happening. You forget when, when it's overwhelming and you've got so much going on in, in your mind and you've still got a function, you've still got a house to run, you've still got children to get to school and things like that, you know, and sick parents, you know. So I journal keeping was, was very, yeah, very productive so, for me. So, Di, then you're saying make sure you document every yeah. incident. Yes. Uh, make sure you're talking to someone and informing others about what's going on. What's going? I'm lucky. I had a lot of friend support, especially with the two venues involved. They were amazing. I mean, yes, I knew them, but got to know them extremely well after all of this. Obtain yeah, a just, protection order, right? Yes. From the individual. Yes, don't ever, definitely. Don't ever meet. Don't ever meet with them or her. No, no. I I did send him a text message to say I was going to police and the courts for an intervention order and. He pleaded with me not to do that and that he would leave me alone. Well, yes, he lied. Surprise. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, And every every time I went into a police station, I would take a copy of the statement that I made. Uh, I had 28 statements before I met Beck. So you 28. Visited, the, visited the police station 28 yeah. times? 28 times. Wow. Yeah. Let's... Let's let's finish up uh, with former detective Beck Norris. Uh, would you add anything on to from a law enforcement perspective? Would you add anything on to what Di just had to say in terms of what should a stalking victim do in terms of certainly dealing with the police? I think, unfortunately, Di is absolutely correct in terms of documentation. You can't underestimate how powerful that is when someone comes in with time, times and dates and what's happened. Because as Di said, when stalking is going on or offending is going on, things become blurry and you forget and it makes it really hard for law enforcement. I appreciate that it's not always safe for people to keep journals or things like that, especially in a um, domestic violence type stalking situation. So I would certainly suggest even you can get apps on your phone that you can hide things and make notes so that it's safe. Um, send it to friends and delete messages so that there's a record somewhere. Um, it's incredibly important, but as I said earlier, to trust your instinct and don't take no for an answer. If you go to a police station and they don't give you the support that you feel that you need, don't accept that. You can. There's ways in Victoria where you can contact the officer in charge of the police station. Contact them. If that fails, contact the Professional Standards Command and make a complaint. It shouldn't get to that, but don't ever accept no. And in the U.S., that would apply, whether it's FBI, local police, there's always a sergeant, lieutenant, captain, chief, someone keep going up those higher ranks and let them keep saying no. So if something bad does happen, we're hoping it doesn't, uh, it's going to fall back on them and make them really look bad. I've worked a number of cases as a police officer, FBI agent, and later profiler in which sometimes the local folks didn't get involved as much as they should have. And it turned out to have some really nasty endings for the uh, not a survivor in these cases, but victims. Mm. So uh, look, uh, 
we've kind of gone a little bit over our time. I, I can't thank you two enough, first of all, for bringing me into this case uh, back in, uh, I guess, uh, right around Christmas of 2018 and, 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 and allowing me to work it. Uh, I learned from this case. It's something else. And I actually use, I, I, I black out names, whatever, but I use it in my uh, teaching at Penn West University for threat assessment, forensic linguistic analysis. So, uh, so uh, and my students learn from unfortunately, uh, you know, die what you had to go through. But, mm-hmm. um, but that's, that makes them better at what they do for future cases in that regard. So um, I'm happy uh, both of you came with us to, uh, on, the, on the program today. And I hope a lot of women and some men out there, men are stalking victims too at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and they learn the rules kind of are the same, more or less, in terms of things you should do in terms of documentation, going to law enforcement, what have you. So, um, so again, thanks to you guys. Ray, I'll turn it over to you to uh, take us out of here. One last thing is I am honored to be in your presence and to be on a show with both you, Di, and you, Beck. Uh, I think you guys are fantastic, and you are heroes to women, and they should look up to you with exactly what to do when they're involved in a situation like this. You guys are fantastic. Thank you for being here with us tonight. With that, everybody, Fitz and Ray are signing off. Make sure you subscribe to Cold Red for updates and details about this season's programming. Take care, everyone. Bye. And we're out.